coming out of the natural gas industry and, you know, being, you know, the benefactor of so much good training, whether it's management training or, you know, just personal training about how to conduct yourself, how to live your life, how to think your thoughts. I'm always willing to, you know, be very watchful of people coming out of the natural gas industry because I think generally they've been trained well and have a good view of what America needs to do to move forward. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Inveris. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments in iTunes to leave a review. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 10-second survey. All right. Well, I'm sitting here this afternoon with Tucker Perkins, President and Chief Executive Officer of Propane Education and Research Council, also known as PERC, and the host of the Path to Zero podcast. Tucker, how are you? Hey, Paige. I am doing really well on this chilly afternoon, but happy to be with you and look forward to spending the next 30 minutes or so together. Okay, well, if it lasts longer, by all means. <laughs> Tucker, let's discuss how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Well, I don't know if I would say I'm probably like most everybody, but I found my way in at first just from watching my father, who was a propane person. He graduated college himself in, at Tulane and found his way to a propane company. So eventually I was born and would follow him to the office and do things on Saturday and kind of work there through high school and then college in what was then a multi-state propane business. Came out of college as an engineer and wanted to work as a real engineer. So I was a consultant for a while, but eventually got courted by the natural gas utility in Virginia, which was a great opportunity because that particular natural gas company had about four divisions, one of which was a transmission company for the natural gas, a distribution company. Then as well, they had an LNG and then a synthetic natural gas plant. And eventually I found my way to really kind of being essentially the chief engineer for, I guess, three of those divisions and really kind of found my way into the natural gas business and just loved it. I laughed. I used to come home some days, particularly when we either were building pipelines or doing something on pipelines, come back and tell my wife, you know, today was such a grand day that I would have done this for free. (laughs) <laughs> and I loved, I mean, you look back now, you know, really LNG was really kind of early on. There was on the East Coast, at least there was our plant in Chesapeake, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, and then our sister plant at Cove Point. And so, you know, really lots of experiences there to share about LNG. We had an import terminal for propane and butane and really it kind of exposed me to the worldwide trade for natural gas liquids. And that was exciting. Some days we'd buy a load of propane in Algeria or something and ship it to the U.S. And before it got to the U.S., we would have sold it again into Europe or some other faraway place. So it was a great, just a great exposure 
kind of to follow that story, that Virginia utility became part of Columbia Gas. I stayed with Columbia Gas for a while, but eventually left Columbia Gas, just yearning for a little bit more entrepreneurial push and Mm -hmm. started, I guess at that time, started the first of several propane companies that I started and built up and then sold along the way bought a manufacturing business with some of my Columbia Gas colleagues and built that up and sold it and then found my way to this Propane Education and Research Council, which arguably is probably the most challenging job I've had in my entire career as it's, you know, <laughs> one day you're a venture capitalist, one day you're a marketing person, one day you are, you know, trying to work through the modern techniques of safety and training. And every day you're really trying to balance strategic vision and execution. So it's kind of, but it's always really the last nearly, I don't know, 30 years have really been dedicated to oil and gas at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Can you break down what PERC is? Yeah. PERC, exactly. it's interesting. PERC, PERC probably doesn't have anything like it, certainly in the U.S. and really in the world. So PERC, but you correctly said it, the Propane Education and Research Council is a checkoff fund that was created with government approval, but created at the request of the propane industry to really represent the propane industry in everything other than lobbying. We don't lobby because we take a half of a cent of a gallon from every gallon that's sold in the U.S., and then we turn around and redeploy it, help make the whole industry safer, whether it's consumers or propane marketers selling you know, propane, a world-class safety and training group. You know, a pretty strong marketing program now, really trying to expand on the view that, you know, low carbon fuels like propane and natural gas strongly have a seat in today's decarbonization environment. And as we even think about fuels of the future and the environment of the future, you know, really, we're not just a bridge fuel. I think we believe clearly that propane and natural gas are fuels of the future. And we have a marketing program that supports that. Probably the third and maybe most challenging part of the job is we also work as venture capitalists and uh-huh. we put money in. I mean, the classic example right now is, you know, we're a partner with Cummins Engine Company. We've contributed $18 million. They've contributed well north of $150 million to create, wow. to create really the most technology futuristic propane engine that exists in the world today. And it probably wouldn't have happened without our investment Certainly wouldn't have happened without our vision and then Cummins capable execution. But we've, you know, we created propane school buses. There would not have been propane school buses, but for our vision that that is something that should happen as we think about how to get children to school safely and in a much better environment than a diesel bus. We created propane lawnmowers, but we do mundane things that people don't talk about. We've created a better burner for your stove to begin to end some of this nonsense about gas stoves are killing the planet because of the indoor air quality that comes from a natural gas stove. Couldn't be further from the truth, but <laughs> right. you know, one of the things that's nice to talk about is, yeah, we do have this ultra low NOx burner now that is a step forward in a cleaner environment. And Renai and their on-demand water heaters and really Renai's competitors, Navian, State, and a few others, you know, we've been really active in that. Generac. We partner with, on any one day, probably 55 or 60 different manufacturers, helping them see the future of propane, of natural gas to a degree, and then work to see that these appliances and technologies are state-of-the-art. Because I think that's the thing that, that 
I do really believe that there is a future for propane and natural gas, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. But part of that evolution is that the appliances have to be as modern as a Tesla car or as a spaceship, really. I mean, it has to be, you know, we have to kind of have that same level of technology and innovation and continuous improvement or we will fall behind. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And it's cost effective. And, you know, part of our industry is prosperity for all, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, I think, you know, yeah. again, I know we were going to talk more about entrepreneurship and leadership than we are vision. But, you know, I think the thing that is so much of this is painfully obvious to me, not in an effort to try to sell more propane or be a better leader to the propane industry, but as just a part that's of a person that's listening very closely to the conversation and thinking about a better future. And one of the things that strikes me is so many people like oil and gas caused the problem. Oil and gas should not be a part of the solution. I don't think that could be more wrong in both respects. One, I don't think oil and gas caused the problem because oil and gas brought us away from coal and oil and wood to a degree to a brighter future. But certainly the scale of our business will execute the solutions. I mean, we will be responsible for parts of the solutions, but we will be responsible for the execution of the solutions probably across the board because it's a problem of scale. And oil and gas companies have the scale to make those shifts. And by, whether it's human capital or real capital or physical assets, but not only that, I think oil and gas are invested in seeing that they're a part of the future. And so it's fun to be a part of this industry and to a degree, you know, really rally. Certainly I do rally the propane industry to move forward at a pace faster probably than they would love to move. And to a degree to defend the oil and gas industry when they need to be defended and also to spur them on to a higher high when they are ready to listen to how to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only taken them this long to start defending the industry in itself. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, move along slow. So anyway, let's talk about your podcast, Path to Zero. Yeah, Path what to do you Zero discuss on there? has been really a wonderful opportunity for me. And we really started it with a view to just begin to create an honest conversation about how, what do we need to do to improve the environment? And what is the truth? about decarbonization? What is the truth about climate science? What's the truth about, um, you know, renewable energies? Or, you know, just our last guest, we talked with a great person on fusion, on nuclear fusion. Over the years, we've now talked, you know, to great climatologists. We've talked to people who are experts around carbon and carbon capture and carbon, you know, how to store it nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, small modular nuclears. I mean, anybody who has a unique perspective, sometimes aligned with probably my own and sometimes very much at odds with my own views about how do we get to a cleaner climate and one that is in fact affordable and just. And I would say three years ago, I'm not sure I even knew what environmental justice was. Certainly don't believe I understood it. And now, you know, we've had scientists, we've had university professors, the NAACP, you know, have, have been on to talk with us about their views of environmental justice. And it's really been just an eye-opening experience for me. 
and it's given me quite a Rolodex of people that I can talk to. You know, if I, Robert Bryce, kind of on my speed dial, if I want to talk about nuclear energy or maybe, you know, the world according to him, Catherine Hayhoe, I would argue, you know, maybe the most effective climate scientist on the planet, certainly one that I deal with. Just those kind of people who really managed to not only stay in touch and to form this loose collaboration, not necessarily of like-minded people, of like-interested people right. to continue this the debate going forward. Because, I don't know, I find things that we thought maybe were true three years ago, things change quickly. So it's not pro-oil and gas. It's not anti-oil and gas. It's neither of those. It's pro-environment and just trying to present a truly honest view of, you know, where are we and how do we get to where we want to be? Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, let's jump into leadership. What is leadership to you, Tucker? Well, that could be one of the harder questions I've maybe been asked this year, but I think, and by the way, I think leadership is very unique almost to each person. I study, I agree. I, I study leadership as much as you can possibly study, as much as time allows. And, you know, I, I love a lot of different techniques about it. And I find people have such different views on it. But for me, really leadership is about setting the course and then really constantly rechecking the course and seeing that your priorities that you are working on are in fact the priorities you should be working on. And that, and it's nothing more complex than that. I laughed. I got a master's degree in business and I said at one point, there's nothing in that program that probably you couldn't figure out with maybe two cases of beer and a couple good afternoons um, <laughs> because most of it tends to be common sense. But, and again, so your question, I would think your listeners are going, man, that's nothing more than a simple answer to a really difficult question. But I really think leadership is nothing more than setting the tone. I'll construe that to setting the course you're on, constantly checking that course and then just making sure that through all the noise that inevitably is there, no, let's do a little bit more left. Let's go a little bit more right. Let's go, you know, that you are constantly matching the strategic needs with the ability to execute. Very good. So do you have an example of maybe making decisions as a leader during a hard time? Yeah, I mean, I think I probably have, uh, I think two examples come to mind and you know, I've worked for a couple of really financially strapped companies and you literally just didn't have, you know, the capital you needed to execute on where you really wanted to or where you thought would be the right thing. So there you have to pick, you have to be so strategic about doing the most important thing because you can only perhaps afford to do one thing. It really kind of homes you. I think working for a cash starved business is a great training because it really does help you focus on arguably what's some of the times the most important thing in business, which is don't run out of cash. Don't run out of money. Yeah. And I think today where I am, we're all kind of on the other side of that spectrum. To a degree, we have enough cash to do most anything, but not everything is worth doing. So you have to be equally focused on doing what makes a difference. And not because you can, but because only do what makes a difference and do more of it and do it better. And so I think it's funny. Those are both, those are opposite ends of the same spectrum, yeah. you know, being so strategic 
because you can't afford to do but one thing and being so strategic because you can afford to do it really well. And I think both of those, I'm kind of at that one spectrum now, but I think the training is helpful because you, I mean, all businesses, I think, you know, have to really think about what do I do well? What's my strategic advantage? And we got all kinds of fancy words for that SWOT analysis, or, you know, there are probably 15 different models about identifying your barriers and your opportunities. But at the end of the day, it's about achieving what you do and doing it better than anybody else. And I think that's really the vision that you got to have if you're going to lead a business is you got to have that vision and then you've got to figure out how to execute that vision. Very good. What's your favorite part about being a leader? You know, I'm not sure I would have answered it this way 10 years ago, but I think clearly now it's to see people develop their potential. Oh, yeah. To see people that maybe you saw something in them that they had never seen in themselves and then to watch them kind of unfold to be great leaders themselves. That's probably, and I think that's, you know, we're all scratching our heads these days, really. We feel like we went into 2019 or whatever, you know, pre-COVID. I think we seemed that we thought we had enough workers and enough, we had enough people to do what we all wanted to do. And we weren't short waiters or truck drivers or carpenters and plumbers or gas fitters. And, you know, post-pandemic, we're just wondering, gosh, we don't have enough people to, you know, clean up a hotel room or to cook a meal or to drive a truck or whatever. And so now we're in this point where, for me, it's just exciting to take someone that you know has it in them and then to figure out how to bring it out of them and how to make them set them up. Because once you figure that out, I would argue you're kind of set for life. If you can communicate and think and lead, historically, you can do that whether you're selling cookies or natural gas liquids. And that's clearly the most rewarding part for me now is to develop a team of leaders that you know will execute till their retirement. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actual intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. And Everest is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only in Everest has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Everest.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S.com. If you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be? Well, I've been talking about being strategic and you tell me I only have one piece of advice. <laughs> I think the piece of advice I would say is never stop learning. If I had just one piece of advice, never stop learning, never stop being intellectually curious, never stop learning. And because I think that if you can remain intellectually curious about everything, then you can only be better at most everything you do. Well, not only that, but in this industry, if you're not continuously learning, you're going to get left behind. Oh, yeah. If you bring that back to oil and gas specifically or technology or uh, I don't know, maybe. Right. Yeah. But for us, certainly everything that we tended to think was, I mean, let's go back to the 1850s. You know, everything we thought you know, for the early on oil, you know, rush, gas rush, 
is different now, right? I mean, Lord, right. thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks to you know people who figured out we could, you know, do hydraulic fracking. Thanks to people who thought maybe that there was vision of nuclear fusion. So yeah, everything that we thought a hundred years ago has shifted, and I see it every day. I mean, I, my work today is, and I'm quick to call it. I said it's modern engineering meeting modern manufacturing allows us to do things today that we really couldn't even do five or 10 years ago. And so, yeah, but my simple advice is never stop learning because that just continually opens up not only doors in front of you, but I think doors inside your own head. Very good. Very good. What book influenced you the most and why? I would guess if you ask that question to a hundred people in the context of this show, they're going to give you a leadership book. Somebody's going to say, Actually, I've gotten all kinds of different somebody's stuff. Somebody's going to say something corny like, who moved my cheese or something. <laughs> you know, Actually, I don't think I've heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the book that probably has influenced me the most is Undaunted Courage, which is an odd answer, I am sure, written by Stephen Ambrose about the story of Lewis and Clark leaving, I'll say Virginia, since that's where I live, leaving Virginia to discover the Pacific. And it's the story of how they prepared and how they started their journey, how they built their team. And then it just becomes a story of just sheer determination and cunning and guile and good luck. I laugh all the time. You know, they didn't really know where they were, didn't really know where they were going. They would separate and say, I'll meet you here in five days. And, you know, fast forward to today, sometimes my wife and I can't find each other in the shopping mall with cell phones both in her pocket, right? And, <laughs> yeah. But just the sheer, you know, the word we use today is grit, I guess. But just the sheer grit that those people experienced in exploring and thinking, you know, beyond themselves. And a story in the book that just kills me, if anybody's been into the Rockies can think about it, is they first get to the first mountains and they're just struggling to literally get their whole team over this first mountain, fully expecting when they crested that first mountain, they would either see the Pacific or they would see the plains that stretch to the Pacific. And of course, if you think about going west from the east, and you think about climbing those <laughs> Rockies, when you finally climb that first mountain, all you see is another series of even bigger mountains. <laughs> right. And so I, mean, I think for me, that just is just a story that just kind of reminds you about grit and determination and perseverance. And yeah, that story always stuck with me. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You see one mountain and there's only more mountains. Yeah. And, Eventually you know, you'll and, get and there. Of course, the end of the story is awesome, right? They persevered. They climbed the next mountain and then the next mountain and the next one and seven more and eventually found their way to that plane and eventually, you know, got from that plane and found their way back to the, found their way to the Pacific. And, you know, just interesting communicating with Thomas Jefferson along the way, which doesn't even, I can't even really fathom it today, how Thomas Jefferson would write them a letter, how a letter would find them. Three months later, they would respond to him, which a letter would find him three or four months later. And so just, you know, how we communicated then, how we navigated then, how we dealt with unfriendly parties, unfriendly animals. It's just, it's an amazing story. And just, you know, any leader 
Leaders have a lot of bad days, right? There's just no question. You have a lot of bad days. You are alone. You should be alone. You should think about it. You need clarity. And it's just a great reminder sometimes of just how good grit and perseverance are. Perfect. Yeah. Well, speaking of technology, what's your most used business tool? Well, you know, I have to think about that for a second. <laughs> I mean, today it would be my cell phone, I think. I'm not sure that's exactly what you would call a tool, but for me, certainly it is. It's a cell phone to make sure that my nonverbal communications that everybody talks about, emails, slacks, text, whatever, are augmented clearly by voice communications where you can impart tone and emotion and, you know, have a fairly clear conversation. So maybe I will stop that. I think maybe I will stay there. I think that's, again, something I see, you know, a lot of younger people just aren't willing to pick the phone up. And it's just so critical sometimes to have full and complete conversations and communications. And none of those things I talked about earlier really impart tone and often, frankly, impart an incorrect tone, not the tone you intended to send whether it's curtness or brevity or disagreement. And so I'm quite famous for just trying to get my own self into a spot where I'm not under a deadline. I don't have a big agenda and call the team around me or sometimes people that I'm trying to, you know, see, get to a higher high and just say, Hey, tell me what you're doing. Tell me what your barriers are, what your pressure points are. And just talk about the business in front of us that way. I'm going to stick with my first answer, which is the most important technology I think I use is a cell phone. Very good. And yeah, I definitely understand what you mean by tone, because when I write an email, it's very blunt and to the point. So it could be taken as rude, you know? So yeah, definitely get that. Yeah, you know, I just find so often, you know, the youngest people on my team, the 20s, you know, they're just so content to deal with email, Slack and text. I mean, all those tools we have. And they're great tools. Well, they've never lived without said technology. Yeah, they're great tools. But, you know, I feel like some days if we had invented the phone last, people might say, gosh, look at this modern tool we have that we can actually talk about it. And I think rather than relying on one device, sometimes it's best to rely on every once in a while just to check in. And I say phone, you know, can this work from home world we live in, decentralized world? It's kind of the way you come together now. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but who would you say is your most respected competitor? Well, I'm going to, let's see, you know, I don't really view us to be in competition. So maybe I'll kind of answer, let me twist it around a little bit. I mean, there are many people in our industry that I love to be around. You know, they challenge me. They kind of remind me of the value of being bright and being articulate and being astute. The current chairman of the Propane Council quickly comes to mind, Stuart Weedai. He runs a company called Blossman Gas, kind of a super regional, if you will, propane company, but they're just in tune with their customer. They're in tune with their employees. And so not really a competitor. Certainly we're aligned in many respects, but that's a person that, you know, dealing with them makes me better every day. I mean, we, I watch the natural gas people. I love watching coming out of the natural gas industry and, you know, being, you know, the benefactor of so much good training, 
whether it's management training or, you know, just personal training about how to conduct yourself, how to live your life, how to think your thoughts. I'm always willing to, you know, be very watchful of people coming out of the natural gas industry because I think generally they've been trained well and have a good view of what America needs to do to move forward. Very good. What would you say is your most important lesson learned throughout your career? Well, I would answer that. I didn't really tell you every detail of my career, but I would think there have probably been two times at least when I just felt like I was in at the bottom of it, right? I didn't enjoy my job in that company. I didn't really enjoy the people around me. And maybe it's all related, right? Maybe maybe when you're at the bottom of it, it just all looks dark. But I would say several times I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I didn't enjoy the people I was doing it with. I didn't really get much satisfaction from my job. And the tendency would have been to just walk out the door and quit. But I think both times I said people, you know, place some trust in me to fix these problems and to get better. And so I actually did what Lewis and Clark did. I persevered. I exhibited a little bit of grit clearly with a view to work myself out of that situation to maybe work myself into a better situation. But both times I did just that. I persevered, hung in there, tried to improve what I was doing and improve the people around me who were doing it with me. And I think when you've been that low and you fix something, it just is all the sweeter. And I think both of those, I advise people all the time. I think you should take great pleasure, if that's the right word, in being in a horrific situation and just make sure you learn all the lessons as you get out of that situation. And part of the lesson is how to not get into that situation again, right? Yeah. But but I learn from your own mistakes. Both times. One was in a construction environment and really one was in a manufacturing environment later on in that nothing was as I thought it should be. The future didn't look as bright as I thought it should have looked. The current status <laughs> was worse than I could have ever dreamed it should be. But a little bit of perseverance and, you know, a lot of hours worked and a little bit of cunning and guile as well, trying to get other people to do things that maybe they really weren't quite capable of doing to persevere. And so I think that's those have both been the, the great lessons for me. Fantastic. Fantastic. So why is your role now important to the future of the industry? Well, that's maybe the easiest question you've asked today. Um, (laughs) And I think the reason my role is important is unlike the natural gas industry, which generally is made up of quite a few really large companies and sophisticated behemoths who are integrated generally into all kinds of policy and politics You know, the propane industry is really made up of 3,500, in the U.S. at least, 3,500 independent companies, some very large, Amerigas, Ferrogas, Suburban, CHS kind of come to mind, and some are really small. People that, you know, if you live in your local community, you know who they are, but they may not extend past your local community. And they may sit on your bank board. They certainly participate in your little league and are good members of the community, but they are simple people. And, you know, the Propane Education and Research Council has the ability to kind of take those 
aggregated views, if you will, across 50 states and turn it into one voice and one set of actions and allows us to do things that no one could do individually. And so sitting where I sit to lead this Propane Education Research Council, it really gives us a voice in this new conversation. And I think this new energy conversation is so interesting, frankly, because it's so wrong. And I don't, I wrestle every day with how did the conversation get so wrong that gas is bad and solar and wind or electricity made from gas is good. It just, (laughs) right. That the only path to a clean climate is to eliminate fossil fuels. And, you know, even I'm not often a defender of oil or diesel fuel, heating oil, but you would have to say that even those which have literally given us the quality of life we have to this point, even they have made massive changes in thinking about decarbonization or carbon capture or renewable components. And this should never have been about fossil fuels versus renewable electricity. It should be about how to get to a cleaner climate and one, in fact, that we could afford and one that's reliable. And so, you know, my job has really changed in the last four or five years because now it is almost exclusively aimed at trying to change the trajectory of the conversation to a more accurate conversation. And I find people say, well, you know, man, you must be the master of greenwashing. No, I'm not the master of greenwashing because I think there are certain things you know, there's a wide path for a lot of these fuels. And I certainly think renewable electricity has a path, but it's not the only path. And in fact, as you and I were just talking before we started talking the show, anybody who lived through winter storm Uri is quick to remember that reliance on one fuel is a really bad idea. Right. Exactly. Your partners in Texas certainly didn't have heat, couldn't cook their food. Most of them couldn't take a hot shower. Some of them couldn't even get running water if they lived out far enough that they had, you know, wells that required electricity to pump water. So, you know, my job today is really to represent all the low carbon fuels. I think a lot of days I'm representing natural gas as well as propane in that, you know, these low carbon fuels are fuels of the future. They're not just fuels of today. They're fuels of the future. And here's why. And it's certainly, I didn't sign up for that. I'm not sure I was trained for that. (laughs) But over the last five years or so, I've gotten a lot better at it because I've been in the conversations too many times and been able to, you know, at least come up with coherent reasons why low carbon fuels are critical to the future. Whether it is about reliability or affordability or just some of the fallacious thinking like, well, natural gas is bad, but natural gas making electricity is good. How perverse is that? I mean, direct use of any energy would be better than the indirect use of energy just from an efficiency standpoint. So it's a tall task in front of me and one that I kind of take with great pleasure, but also with a great degree of seriousness. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing that bothers me is that we're trying to, you know, they're trying to make us transition without oil and gas. I kind of tend to push back when people say this is an energy transition because I'm like, No, transitions generally imply something smooth and nearly seamless. And, hey, step over this transition. This is a transformation. 
right? And you see it, Europe is seeing it today, right? That's not a transition. People don't freeze during a transition. People don't have electric bills that they can't afford to pay during a transition. This is a transformation. Yeah, like California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I was talking with a partner in the power generation space in London this week, and he you know, reminded me that he pays the equivalent of 65 cents a kilowatt hour in London right now. And, you know, I just keep looking. I don't know why Americans are so good at studying history, but we have a living lab in front of us right now in Europe. And we're seeing Germany take a different path in France and both of them probably taking a different path in England. But we can study it right now and see firsthand what not to do. And in many cases, we just seem to just like, no, let's just go. Let's just fight. Europe's done it right. No, I don't think so. They're not. No, warm. they're going to freeze this yeah. winter. So people are going to die. Right. And I, I mean, that's been the fear. And I think maybe the good news is now we think this winter is not going to be the winter where we have to witness that. Thank goodness we don't, perhaps. But you know, already people are talking about, well, next winter could be the winter that actually does in some of the Europeans. And I would argue it's already done in most of the German economy that revolved around manufacturing. And because of high energy cost, they've really lost their competitive edge. So anyway, it's a great thing to do now. You know, I'm a kind of an engineer, undergraduate, trained engineer. That kind of helps you. I got a master's degree where it lets you apply maybe a little bit more broad thinking, macro thinking. But I'm quick to quote Voltaire all the time that, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. And people are so often saying, well, I want, I'll step over good or really good, i.e. propane, natural gas, and I'll wait for perfect, i.e fusion, electricity that actually comes from renewable sources that are clean and plentiful and affordable and reliable. I don't know when that reality gets here yet, but it certainly would be 30, 40 years off. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the near future. So do you have a favorite podcast? Well, I think that's a trick question because I think <laughs> <laughs> I am bound by my contract to say my favorite podcast is Path to Zero. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fun host. He's goofy looking and he sounds like a dumb Southern boy, but he has great guests and they have genuine conversations about the climate and its impact on everything else that we touch. So yeah, I'm going to take the easy one there and say path to zero. No bias, no bias. (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining me today, Tucker. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about your company or your podcast, how might they go about doing so? Well, I love sending people to our website. It's propane.com. You know, we really work hard to turn it into a place where there's a spot to really engage environmentally, engage in some of this new technology. I talked about Cummins or Renai or you know, with just so many neat technologies that we're working on there. So I start with propane.com. I'm never afraid to offer my email as well. Tucker.Perkins at propane.com because we really love people. Do you have a LinkedIn? I'm certainly heavily into LinkedIn and Twitter. And so I think you can generally find me if you go to propane.com. I think you can find me pretty well there, but I'm on LinkedIn. I'm active there. I love a lot of the forum that we have there. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast. 
a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. Yeah.